May all our praises be a sweet sound in your ear, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Some hymns don't need a lot of words. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful little hymn? I sing that in my prayer time sometimes, going way back to my early days in Christianity. Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry, 15. <laughs> Told you about that dyslexia. It's something you, you never really get over. Romans chapter 15. That's a 1 and a 5 for those of you who are following. I'll read a few verses, 14 through 19, <clears throat> um, and I'll make my remarks today based on a couple of the concepts that Paul brings up here that it seems to me are particularly um, important and relevant at this time in, the, in our church life, in our Christian lives. So um, I don't hope to do justice to the entire passage, but it'll give us a context with which to look into the points that I will consider. So 14 through 19 now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient." in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. O oh, Father, may our preaching go out as this faithful servant's preaching has gone, O oh Lord, and may we see the fruit of it, and may there be fruit in our lives by the Spirit who lives and dwells within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so verse 14, he's kind of summarizing, he's kind of ending up, coming close to the end of this long treatise on the doctrines of Christianity. And so Paul writes, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. So Paul is being very generous in his est estimation of the spiritual state of the Roman church. Now remember, it's a church he did not found, and it's a church he has not visited. But it does seem from the last chapter that he knows a lot of the people there personally. Interesting how small the Christian world was at that time, even though it encompassed Middle Earth. Mediterranean means Middle Earth, right? And it, you know, it encompassed Western Europe, certainly, to some degree. It encompassed 
North Africa and um, what he calls here Illyricum, which is, which is the west coast province of Greece on the Aegean Sea. And so Paul has been around and he's preached the word to a lot of places where it has not been heard before, which he says specifically uh, later on in this, in this chapter. But he's quite complimentary, if we can say it that way. Um, I think it's his true assessment. I don't think the apostle goes around throwing around compliments, but you know what I mean. You're filled with all goodness, he tells the church. You're filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. So judging from the uh, personal greetings of the people by name at the end of the in chapter 16 in the next chapter and the general information he has of them he's certainly well known to many of that congregation so he seem it seems to us that he's able to make um this assessment of them righteously um he hears news back and forth it really is a small i mean he says so often i heard of your faith in Christ, or I heard of your lack of faith, or he says these things, so word gets around. And so he writes, I'm confident that you're full of goodness. Friends, wouldn't you hope a church is full of goodness? But to have the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell you as a church body that you're full of goodness, I can say that this morning to our church. We are certainly full of goodness. And I'm talking about the goodness of the hearts of the people toward one another and in their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So I don't believe he's just being polite. It's not really the way he is, and it's not the tenor of this epistle. He's making a value judgment of them as a church, and it seems that in his opinion and from the reports he's heard from several of the members, that they are a vital and stable community of saints with many good qualities and spiritual insight and moral virtue. So he writes to them what most commentators will agree is the most complete doctrinal statement of Christianity ever penned. You know, I've been in some conversations, even recently, and you've probably heard people say things like this, and on the surface it's a very obvious thing to say, and it's really, in some sense, full of wisdom. The churches ought to be in unison with one another. All the churches ought to agree because the world looks at us bickering and we have different denominational emphases, right? As Baptists, I suppose you can say we focus on baptism. And as Presbyterians, I suppose you could say we focus on church government, you know? But really, it isn't as though that hasn't been tried. It was accomplished once. I remember from Acts chapter 2, they were all in one place in one accord. That's the last time that they were all in one place with one accord, right? Um, Because if you read most of the other epistles, they're pretty strong rebukes for bad behavior. Um, Not so here, which I'll speak on briefly, but most commentators agree this is a complete doctrinal statement, but when you think about it, in these conversations that I've had, and they, these conversations have been have, had worldwide about ecumenicalism, the church is all coming together and dropping our differences. But friends, we could throw out 
genuine Christianity by doing that. Some of the churches are patently wrong. And certainly some of the cults are. So I asked in this recent conversation I had with someone, I said, well, what are the basic doctrines of the church? But even the word doctrine is stifling to some people as though it's some kind of harsh, you know, um, medical term or something that we don't need to deal with. But doctrine is just the list of the things we believe. So I said, well, let's put together a basic list of the of the doctrines we need to believe. I can come up with two right off the bat that I think are the most important. The deity of Christ, number one. That means Jesus Christ is God, right? And so that would put us uh, in brotherhood with most of the churches, not the so-called cults, right, who are really very good morally, and they teach people to read the Bible, even though they've made minor little adjustments to the Bible, um, uh, which turn out to be not so minor, but um, you'd have to leave out Jehovah's Witnesses because they think Jesus is a creation of God. In other words, they come and preach another Jesus. And if I, the Apostle Paul, or an angel from heaven, preach to you any other Jesus than what we have preached, let him be accursed. I say again, let him be accursed. How do you have ecumenicalism with somebody who's been accursed for preaching another Jesus? So obviously you've got to strike certain groups. We can be in unison with our Catholic brethren on the point of the um, deity of Christ because they also hold to the Nicene Creed and other creeds that point to Jesus Christ as God. He is true God of true God of one substance with the Father, right? Um, So they speak of the nature of Christ in their creed, so we have brotherhood with them in that, it seems to me if there is another essential teaching of the church, it would have to be justification by faith, right? And so now we're no longer brothers with, the, with, our, with our Catholic brethren. We've, we've raised the standard too high with only our second doctrine. So how many doctrines shall we make essential? And this has always been the problem. And, and when I brought this up, the two doctrines I mentioned, but to an evangelical brother, neither one of the doctrines seemed very important to him at all. We ought to just say, I, I believe in the Bible. That's so obtuse. It isn't that I believe in the Bible. It's what do you believe about the Bible? I mean, a lot of people read it. I told you, I studied it in college by people who knew nothing about the Spirit of God. It would have treated the Bible like it was a collection of anthology of fanciful tales, right? Greatest story ever told. So doctrine's important, and that's what the epistle to the Romans gives us, one after the other after the other. Certainly justification by faith is hammered home in that. Certainly the fact that Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man is hammered home in that. Certainly that he was crucified. Certainly that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. All of that, we would have to all agree to those things. And then we came down to chapter 14 where there were some things that were not essential and that that God left up to us to, to sort of iron out between us. And so we can get together even though we don't believe in some of the quote, things indifferent, non-essentials, right? We could still be a loving church. Even in our small group, there's some little things that some people think are good or bad and other people don't agree, but there's still loving brotherhood believe, uh, between us. Um, 
And so we have the, the epistle to the Romans as a doctrinal statement. And it's a fairly complete and lengthy doctrinal statement that um, not only mentions the doctrine by name, but, but explains them and shows why they are true and how they comport with the existing scriptures of the Old Testament. And so most commentators agree that the book of Romans is a complete or nearly complete statement of the, of the doctrines that we all hold dear and ought to um, be of one mind in. And so what they've been taught by the Holy Spirit, he's bolstering with inspired commentary. And so he's confident that this group in Rome believes these things he's sending to them. But it was still important for him to write them down. And so he calls them good. Friends, it would be really difficult. I'm going to say it would be impossible to have the Spirit of God through faith in Christ, to know the teachings of God, to live them out in your life, and to be called anything but good. You'd have to be good to know those things and to live them out. And it seems that in his opinion, that that's the state of this church. And so he calls them good. It's as Jesus said to his disciples, they were good before they got the letter, Right? So Jesus said to his disciples, John 6, 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught by God or they, they shall all be taught by God. So the Holy Spirit does some teaching, doesn't he? And some people say, I don't need you to tell me anything. I have the Holy Spirit to teach me. Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit, believe it or not, teaches through guys like me. And the point of this passage, though, is the Holy Spirit teaches through guys like you, able to admonish one another. It's been uh, observed that the Roman, that Romans and Thessalonians were the only churches that Paul saw no need to rebuke. The Corinthians got some pretty strong rebukes, right? Um, It's much more pleasurable to teach than it is to warn and threaten. You know, Paul said, I think it was to the Corinthians, Paul said, shall I come to you uh, in love or with the rod of correction? <laughs> right, he can, come, he can come either way. Um, to the Thessalonians, he didn't say that. He said, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. There's a certain level of understanding that we receive the moment we become Christians. We receive teaching from Christ through his Holy Spirit. He imparts the teachings of Christ. I have many things to teach you, but you cannot bear them all now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, shall come, he will lead you into all truth, Jesus said. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Though the Spirit of God is our primary teacher, he also uses means to teach us. And we ought to be grateful for the means and the means, by and large, come out of the church. The church is a means by which we come into contact with God. It's not um, a necessary evil or an optional thing. And so he uses means, and he tells us what those means are. 
First, it was Christ to the apostles. That was the first means that he used, right? Then he used the apostles to teach the world. And after that, he used pastors and teachers with spiritual gifts and zeal to prosper the churches, and he appointed them in all the churches. He even said that to Titus at the beginning of that, of that letter. Paul said, for this reason I left you in, uh, in Crete, that you should set in order the things, uh, to m- making things right and appointing elders in every city. That's a um, paraphrase of what Paul said there. He was bringing order to the churches. The Holy Spirit uses means to teach the people. They don't just sit under a tree by a nice lake on a Sunday morning and, and receive all the doctrines of God from the Spirit. It's not how it's done. But obviously, there is some measure of inward imparting of the Holy Spirit, right? And we know that um, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. But the Holy Spirit doesn't turn you away from the church. The Holy Spirit doesn't turn you away from the written word. The Holy Spirit doesn't turn you away from the essential teachings of Paul the Apostle that we call doctrine. He doesn't turn you away from that. It's your own sinful pride that turns you away from the gifts of God. To the Ephesians, he said it very plainly and orderly. He said, And Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and this is why he gave them, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Right? And he goes on to admonish them, which is a mild reproval, right? We're going to talk a lot about admonishment this morning. He says, no longer be children. In other words, grow up. Don't be all little snowflakes that can't take a little truth that contends with what you thought was true. Don't try to win every every argument, but listen to the Holy Spirit through the means that God has given you to learn from him. So he says, no longer be children. But speaking the truth in love, grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, which presumably you're part of, right, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. In other words, every believer is here to supply something to the body, just as every joint and ligament in your body supplies something useful to the overall body. So you're joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Friends, the church is built on love, but love is built on knowledge of Christ's love. All right? I didn't write that in the notes. I made that up on the fly. You should write it in yourselves. The church is built on love. We know that. Love is built on the knowledge of Christ's love. I pray that you would abound more and more in love and all knowledge, Paul said. So by the faithfulness of God, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, by the love and zeal of the saints for Christ, these Roman Christians received the great approbation of the great apostle for being imitators of Christ in their essential goodness and their humility to make themselves available 
to more extensive teaching with regard to the things of God. They didn't say, we've been taught by God, we have our essential goodness, we have, we're filled with all knowledge, we're able to admonish, what do we need your epistle for? They didn't say that, right? They received it in the way it was intended by God, as a more extensive teaching of the things they already hold dear because they have the Holy Spirit in them. Now, the verse before this says, and I call it a sort of a benediction of joy. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I take this combination of blessings to mean that knowledge of Christ should take us to a place of unspeakable joy. Just knowing what he did for us should take us to a place of unspeakable joy. And I'm not talking about running around all the time slap happy and never have a, uh, a problem or a care in the world. You're just whistling your way through life. That's not what it means. It means in the hard places you go into your prayer closet or into your meditative place and you remember that the big questions of life have been answered. Right? And yeah, there's a lot of little things to distract us in this life and they don't seem little. And they're important to us in the moment, but ultimately we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? So the hope we have, the knowledge of Christ should take us to a place of unspeakable joy. We ought to be able to have this secret joy even in turmoil. And maturity of spirit should bring us to a place of peace with God. We know our sin debt has been canceled. It's been paid for, right? It's been atoned for. We're redeemed. That should give us a peace. We're not going to God as though we still have to merit his love. And that means there's, there's no more tension when we go to God. We go there with peace in our hearts. And he's, he's granting them that. And as we can see, the apostle speaks of the brethren being filled with joy and peace in believing. It's belief that gives us this joy. It's belief that gives us peace with God. There should be a commensurate joy and an Um, all-consuming peace in our faith. Our faith comes with benefits. Joy is one of the benefits, and a peace with God is one of the benefits. The big questions of life have been answered. The ultimate problem has been solved. And all you have to do is look at history just for a moment. I mean, these words were written 2,000 years ago. The United States could have come and gone 10 times. 10 times? Eight times. Somebody do the math. More like eight times. And we, the way we think of time, forget about it. Our life is a speck. Didn't James say we're like a, a vapor on the, on the, uh, on the uh, field that rises up and the sun rises and the vapor's gone. And the flower fails. Our lives come and go. But eternity, eternity can't go anywhere. It'll always be here. But the ultimate problem of knowing where, how you're going to spend your eternity is already solved. That should be a great peace in that. And there should be some joy in that. For the things of this life, its trials cannot be compared with the heavenly joy that's been revealed to us. So the big questions of life and the ultimate problems of life are already solved. And if you believe in that, Paul can say you're filled with goodness, you're filled with knowledge, and you're able to admonish one another. The final act has already been played out. It 
is finished and it's announced as finished by the author and the finisher. He knows about beginnings and he knows about ends. So we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ as we saw, but we don't stand with the uncertainty of the unbeliever. We don't stand with the shaky knees and the incontinence of the common sinner. That's a polite pulpit way of saying we don't pee our pants when we get there. But just in case you missed it, I thought I'd be blunt about it. We're not shaking before the Lord. We come with a confidence. We know we're saved. He might have something to say to still refine us, but we know that we're saved by his grace. And nothing in heaven and earth could, have, could stop that. The unbeliever, not so much. When he comes there, he's surprised by the glory. We're enlightened. We're like, I always wonder what that would look like when I saw him. The unbeliever's like, I don't believe this. He's still saying, I don't believe this. There should be a commensurate joy in an all-consuming peace and faith. And so all our uncertainty about eternity has been done away with by repentance from unbelief and the dead works of our past sinful lives. All of these things have been crucified in our hearts the moment we believed, which was the same moment the Holy Spirit took up residence in our consciences with his soothing, comforting, assuring, empowering, empowering presence. He supplies those things immediately. And so the apostle can speak of the joy that comes from knowledge of the truth and peace from faith in Christ's atonement from sin. And so believers, though they may stray from it, have access to a constant state of abounding hope. And it's a hope unlike carnal, worldly hope. You know, we, we say, I hope it doesn't rain. It isn't that kind of hope. It isn't a... It isn't a hope-so kind of hope. It's a blessed assurance. Christ is referred to as our blessed assurance that we'll go all the way. For how could God not honor the sacrifice of his own son in our behalf? If it wasn't for us, he wouldn't have had to die. So he died for us. And by his own word, by faith in him, we have access, Paul wrote, to the commensurate grace that comes with belief. We hope for what is promised to be. It's already there, and we're, we're, we're hoping for what is assured. Our hope is not a hope-so kind of hope. It's the certain hope of divine promises made to those who've been filled with the spirit of hope. And here's an illustration for you. The hope of this world is like the driver on a deserted highway with the needle on empty, hoping there's a filling station or a charging station, around the next bend that will fuel the rest of the journey. I hope he's hoping for a filling station. He's got a better chance. Our hope is the hope of the bereft and starving widow of Zarephath. Remember her? She was in trouble, but she had something to hope in, even though she was in the same position as all the people of Zarephath during the time of the famine. The prophet of God visited her. She had one handful of flour and one jar of oil. Remember she said, I'm going to go in and make one little cake for me and my son and we will eat it and die. 
<laughs> and Elijah was like, well, you're a cheery person. <laughs> but it was, uh, friends, we don't know famine like this. Uh, there is still famine like this in the world. I was uh, watching a documentary on Ethiopia. It's still very much, you know, people don't even have water in their communities. And, um, but um, that's a talk for another day. But here's the, here's the widow of Zarephath. Has one handful of flour, one jar full of oil, but her life and her lack was interrupted by the mercy of God. The prophet came to her house. And he entered into her home and he said, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, until the Lord sends rain on the earth. She was no longer disposed to put her trust in the amount of food in the cupboard or the amount of fuel in the tank. That wasn't what she hoped in. She was now dependent on the word of God through the prophet of God who was sent to her to bless her. And as long as she had a need, she could trust in the mercy of God to meet her need. You know, it was like the other widow that Elisha went to meet. And as long as she had empty vessels, she had something she could fold. When she ran out of emptiness, she was done. But as long as she had something empty, she had something for the Lord to, to fill. She had but one handful and one jar, but she willingly fed the prophet first. And for her sacrifice, she was rewarded. For her love, she was provided for. And for her trust... She was received. And so the writer of Hebrews may say also, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And then he goes on to say, so do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate the widow of Zarephath. That God will not leave you nor forsake you. And the oil will not run dry. And the flour will not be used up until you're used up. So Paul speaks of joy and peace and hope. And it's the presence of such things that assure him that those who have such assurance also have knowledge, and those with knowledge have goodness. For how could one have knowledge of Christ and remain bereft of the commensurate goodness of Christ? And so what do you suppose is, is born out of knowledge and goodness and hope and peace? What do you suppose is born? What is the fruit of that in this life? The ability to lovingly admonish. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever admonished anybody? You know, you ought not to do that. They usually don't listen. I can tell you from experience. But they should. Because someone who loves them and knows better is telling them what to do or not do. Admonishment is the certain sign of Christian love. Oh, that we would learn that. The apostle has just taught extensively on the sacrificial responsibility of every believer, strong or weak, to have toward the brethren. And so the operative phrase in the passage is able to admonish. 
you have, you have an ability to admonish one another. Why? Because you have an essential goodness built into you by the Spirit of Christ. You, you've been filled with all knowledge because you know the Word of God and the Gospel, right? And you're able to admonish one another as a result of that. Jay Adams was uh, a great teacher of these principles. He, he wrote a series called Competent to Counsel. It's in the library. It's been lent out to certain people who say, I really have to help someone with such and such. I said, pick up Competent to Counsel and read through it. Um, that's what Paul is saying to them. You don't have to be in a position in the church to admonish somebody in their lives. It's showing love. It's, it's the same way a, a parent shows love to a child. Sometimes you have to show your love by telling them what to do. Sometimes you have to show your love by telling them what to think. And so the operative phrase in the passage is able to admonish. And who is able to admonish? Every saint with a mature faith. That's who's able to admonish. Why shouldn't you be able? You know more than the, than the young believer in Christ. And that's those who are full of knowledge of God and the goodness that springs from it. In other words, those whose lives have become the stable and trustworthy vessels within the body that others feel confident to consult for help with their own trials and or shortcomings. They see that your knowledge has prospered you in your life and has kept your walk with God and your marriage and your life with your children stable and fruitful for God. They know they can trust the admonishment that you're lovingly willing to give them. So there are a few things that believers should look inward rather than outward to resolve. And by inward, I don't mean inward. I mean within the body, within the local church. Some troubles that we have, we look outward for. Some troubles that we have, we look in the body for. And so by outward, I mean outside the body of Christ to those who are expert in worldly sciences and therapies. I have a problem. Where are you going to go as a believer? To somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit? You're already up on him. He's going to hell, to be blunt. In a word, I'm talking about secular psychology, friends. Secular psychology is at odds with Christian doctrine. The pseudoscience of secular psychology has no access to the problems that believers face. They do not exist within the same spiritual fear. Sphere, rather. Um, it's long been a conviction of mine that all problems are theological. And to bring a problem of divine proportions to a secular practitioner is like having a mortician perform a heart surgery. Think about that. His expertise is in dead things. Jesus said to one man, let the dead bury the dead. It seems to me we may infer from this that only the living may exhume the living. You know what exhume means? It means dig up, <laughs> raise from the dead. Only the living can help the living. A dead embalmer put Lazarus in the ground, but the living Christ called him out. So let the dead counsel the dead and the living counsel the living. Now, the word for admonish is nuthateo. 
Have you heard that word? Jay Adams developed his whole system of counseling on that word. He calls it neuthetic counseling. Calls it neuthetic counseling. MacArthur gives an expanded meaning. He writes this, Nuthateo carries the ideas of encouraging, warning, and advising. It's a comprehensive term for counseling. In this context, it refers to coming alongside other Christians for spiritual and moral counseling. Paul is not referring to a special gift of counseling, he writes, but of the duty and responsibility that every believer has for encouraging and strengthening other believers. That's the belief that was so really earth-shattering to the psychological community of which Jay Adams was a part. But of course, he was also a Christian and a believer. And he wonders, what do all these atheist psychologists have to offer the people of God? Right? I mean, it all starts with Freud, right? He's sort of the father of the science, and there was Jung, right? This Skinner, this Rogers, you can go down through the list, Abraham Maslow, um, you know, there's all of these great names, Max Weber, all of these great psychologists, they're all atheists. They don't even believe you have a spiritual struggle going on. How is it they can help you with the day-to-day things of your life if you're a believer? So, MacArthur goes on, he says, tragically, many Christians today have been convinced that competent counsel can only be accomplished by a person who's trained in the principles of secular psychology, despite the fact that our various schools of psychology are, for the most part, at extreme odds with God's word and frequently with one another. Jung and Freud were friends until they had different views about personality development. Then they went their separate ways. And to this day, they're different schools of thought. There's all these different schools of thought. But none of them takes into account the thing that we know is troubling the human race more than anything else. Sin. To the secular psychologist, sin is a value judgment that you have no right to make. To the believer in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, sin is something he has to, he has to before God, lovingly admonish you, to repent of. That, that'll solve your problem. Get rid of the sin. Sound too simplistic? It's not. If our existence is, as the Bible tells us, a twofold synergy of body and spirit, then anything we suffer from must exist in one or both of these realms. You're either, if you're suffering physically, go to someone who studied your physical makeup. Go to a doctor. That's what I do. But if I'm if I'm struggling spiritually, I'm going to come to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or go online to the brothers and sisters in Christ that are smarter than all you guys. <laughs> Jay Adams suggests you don't do that. He suggests you go to the brothers and sisters in Christ who know you and love you best. I took a whole course on this with uh, Dr. Borelli. I think it was the, the 2001. And Lloyd Jonas, you guys remember those? those guys, and they taught at the, um, the Grace Bible Church in East Bridgewater. And uh, Jay Adams' point-for-point treatment of how to become competent to counsel through biblical counseling, and I don't even say Christian counseling, but biblical counseling through the Word of God, it's a very powerful thing. It renews lives. 
So we're made up of a body and a spirit. And so if we have a a bodily problem, we go to a doctor who studies physical things. And if we have a spiritual problem, we go to a doctor who studies spiritual things. But those of you who do have spiritual knowledge, and I and Paul believe that to be the majority of believers. You know, this morning I corrected that. I had wrote vast majority, but I took out vast. And it's because not enough people are receiving the proper teaching on subjects like this. But I think most of us, most of us that have the Holy Spirit that have been around a while, know the things in a person's life that disrupt and even ruin his life. And most of the admonishment you should get is on Sunday morning from the pulpit. Most of the admonishment you get. The people in your life that you would trust to counsel you in a serious area of your spiritual life will be those who are faithful to the attendance of worship on Sunday mornings and, um, and cherish the word of God being taught by a man with gifts. Those are the people you'd look to. I wouldn't go to somebody who is a, a Christian counselor who goes to church once a month or twice a year, Christmas and Easter. I don't think I'd go there. For those of you who do have knowledge, and I believe that to be the majority of believers, must have faith that the creator of our spirits is also the healer of our spirits. And the tools he has provided are within the body of believers. The tools or the gifts are already here. Spiritual uh, maturity must contain with it a confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. Friends, Scripture isn't there just to get you saved. It's there to get you sanctified. It's, It's there with you all through your life. It provides all of life's spiritual healing. The sufficiency of Scripture is a doctrine that we believe. It's the name we give to the doctrine that the Word of God contains within it, the wisdom and power to effect change in a believer's life and to administer healing to a grieving or wavering or doubtful spirit. And it comes from passages like this. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I want to focus on the word inspiration. It comes from a word in the Greek meaning breath, right? It, uh, if you have an amplified Bible, right there it'll say in parentheses, God breathed. That's inspiration. It's like respiration, all right? Scripture is God breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, that means truth, for reproof, that means correction, right? And then for correction, which means correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work that can only come from a Christian practitioner. J. Adams wrote, counseling is the work of the Holy Spirit. Effective counseling cannot be done apart from him. He is called the paraclete, the counselor, who in Christ's place came to be another counselor because unsaved counselors do not know the Holy Spirit. They ignore his counseling activity and fail to avail themselves of his direction and power. So what am I saying here? 
If you're an unbeliever and you come to me for counsel, unless you get saved in that meeting, you'll never take or even understand my counsel. Because my counsel is, your life is the problem with your life. And if you're a believer and you come to me for counsel, we both have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit recognizes his own truth. I know many believers and some of us have gone to worldly counselors to ease the internal pains and fears that are part of our human condition. I know that happens. I know some of you have gone there. And it's our therapeutic society that urges us to do that. But let me say that the world's wisdom cannot solve a problem or speak to a condition that emerges from the spiritual reality in which we live. Right? Dr. Freud can't help me with my spiritual troubles because he doesn't believe I have a spirit. First of all. And so, surely there are band-aids and mo- that modern psychology can offer to the believer. Most of those are drugs. I'm not opposed to drugs. I think drugs have uses. I think these kind of drugs are overused. I'm not going to go into my speech on that today, but I don't think Christians need them. We have a doctor for our spirit. Why would you take a physical thing to heal your spirit? You take a spiritual thing, which is counsel from God. So there are band-aids that modern psychology can offer to the believer, and you may even feel relief for a time, but a long-term healing of a problem that's spiritual in nature could never come from a person who has no access or acknowledgement that a spirit world even exists, much less a caring Savior. Right? Don't think you're going to go in and lie on the, on the, on the, on the couch of your psychologist and tell them all about your faith in God. He doesn't care about that. In fact, he'd probably tell you, here's your problem. The first thing the counselor does, if the first thing the counselor does when you walk in his or her office is not bow in prayer to God for his assistance and his divine mercy, then you are in the wrong place for your problem, Christian. And let me add that spiritual difficulties are usually simple matters to diagnose and resolve. And for the most part, they revolve around residual sin in the life of the patient slash believer. Jay Adams writes again, paraphrasing the words of Paul to the Galatians. This should sound familiar to you. It's time that Christian ministers and other counselors ask again, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Why are Christians without peace? turning to men who themselves know nothing of the peace of God that passes understanding. If you want the peace that passes understanding, you can't go to someone that doesn't know that that's available. So one of the great difficulties in pastoring the church, friends, is mixing loving advice with direct confrontation of sin in the lives of other believers, hurting brothers or sisters in an attempt to keep the counselee coming until he's overcome his problem. We're not wired to like to hear what our problems are. We're not wired for that. The trouble, in, the reason we're not wired for it is because we're wired for pride. 
It really is. It's really the, the, the wall that keeps the advice from being absorbed. The trouble for the pastor is keeping the patient in his care until he's blessed. I found so many times people leave just before they're blessed. They were about to be blessed, but they couldn't hold on long enough. And there's all other voices that come in. And you know where they come from. They all come in, and they try to draw you away from the healing that really was a simple thing for you to receive. So many counselees, that's what Adams calls them, counselees, and say patients. Many counselees depart from counsel just before they're about to be blessed, which means just before they're about to be freed. The secular counsel, counselor will likely not tell you to confess, confess your sin as the first step to healing. Now, I have found that some secular counselors have found that Things like forgiveness are good for the soul. They sort of stumble over a reality. But the Christian counsel will not say that your sin is a sickness. And you see, that's where we run into trouble in this worldly system. Your sin is a disease. It's a sickness. It's a mistake. No, sin is a choice we made in iron-hearted rebellion against God. It's a choice we make, and the habits we develop to hold on to our sins. Those are our sins and our troubles. Why? Because for the secularist, or rather, our, let me say this, our culture, for the secularist, sin is a subjective value judgment and not a reality. It's me telling you something is a sin, and the, the secularist believes that's just my opinion. We want to tell the drug addict that he's a victim today. It's not his fault. He's sick. He's powerless to overcome. Now, if you're not a believer in Christ, I suggest you take secular counsel and come out of drug addiction. I think you'll have a better life not being a drug addict than being a drug addict. And if you use their method and it works for you, and it's a day-to-day struggle, they even say that one day at a time, right? It's a day-to-day struggle. And uh, you should... Go for that. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have power over that. It doesn't have power over you. That's what a lot of Romans 14 was about. And now Paul's saying you're able to admonish on that basis. Friends, he's not sick. He's in sin. He's, they think he's powerless to overcome. We say that an alcoholic not only has a disease, friends, but he has a terminal disease. Not only that, he is his disease. Hello, I'm Jimmy. I'm an alcoholic. That's your identity now. Your disease is your, is your identity. Not, in the, not in, the, uh, in the Christian world. Your disease is something that you can cure and put away and walk away from. You don't have to cope with it day after day, moment after moment. You put it away. You take power over it and then you build upon your life freed of that particular sin. It's not a sickness. You didn't catch it and you can't give it to someone. So the Christian approach would not to be say, hi, I'm Jimmy, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. It would be, hi, I'm Jimmy. I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me. You see, the doctrine of the sufficiency of scriptures empowers us to believe that we're not def- Um, destined to cope with sin, but to overcome it and move on. 
Friends, the things that tempted me to sin when I was young are nothing to me now. I'm not cocky about it. Because there's an in there for the devil to make me think I'm, I'm too tough now, too holy to sin. So I'm wary of it. But I don't struggle day to day, to day with the things I struggled with in my youth. All those sins. Jesus did not enroll the woman caught in adultery into a support group with other whores. Hi, I'm Jezebel, I'm a whore. He said, go and sin no more. She now had the power. She was in the presence of the Savior. He granted her mercy when others condemned her. And he said, go and sin no more. Make a decision not to be a whore. The secular counselor is appalled that I would say this. How can you be so judgmental? Maybe she had a difficult past. Did you ever think of that? No, that got by the Lord. Maybe her father abused her. You know, that's going to come up. To call her failing a sin is a destructive moral judgment. Friends, the believing counselor is compassionate. He knows those. He hears those. He's listened to her accounts of her troubled past. Many times I have. But out of his great care and compassion, he desires to see her, his sister in Christ delivered from her past. Not the product of it. Not forever reliving it. And so rather than say, that's too bad, you'll need to come to me for many months or even years, and perhaps forever. Here, and take this, and we'll up the dosage each month or quarter or whatever. We'll anesthetize you until you die, because you're terminally ill. The Christian counselor is there to remind her who she belongs to. And he may say, forget your past. Let dead things remain dead. Or he may say, you're a new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works. What about that? Or old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What about that blessing? You don't have to live in the past. You're not the plaything of all the people that abused you. Those are memories, friends, and they're hurtful. And I have them. But they don't have me, and they don't have to have you. Paul offers us this wonderful bit of counsel which goes to every troubled and sinful and helpless soul. He says, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And then he writes, but you have not so learned Christ. They are learning that. They're in darkness. They are blind. They are ignorant, but not you, because you're in Christ. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, 
the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man or the new woman that was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't you think we can be urged to trust in that blessing? Who puts off the old man? Who puts off the old memories? Who rises above it? You do. But you don't do it alone. The Spirit of God lives in you. He's making new memories with you. The Christian counselor isn't alone in his counsel. He has the Holy Spirit. He has other means as well to guide the counselee to the peace of God which surpasses understanding. See, that's just it. The peace of God surpasses understanding. The counselor doesn't have the understanding. It surpasses it. He can't get there, not without the Spirit of God. So the next time you go to the psychiatrist and sit on his couch or lay back on his couch, get him saved first. The Holy Spirit ordinarily affects, this is Jay Adams, the Holy Spirit ordinarily affects his characterological work in the lives of believers through the means of grace. He uses the ministry of the word, the sacraments. Fred, you partook of the sacrament today. Let me ask you something. I thought of this while we were taking the sacrament. Bill gives us an opportunity every time to cleanse our minds and hearts of the sins that we're committing. What do you do in that moment? Do you just go, I wonder how long we'll be sitting here before he talks again? Or do you say, you know, I have residual sin, and I am bringing it to the altar of God now, and there is a grace in that, and I'll have power over that sin when I walk away from this service today. What do you do in those moments when you're supposed to be considering your lives before God and the residual sin that you still live in? You have the sacraments. There's a means of grace there. God imparts power through the sacrament. He uses the ministry of the word. I hope we all know that. That's a means of grace. You know, the people with the worst problems, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's so obvious, are the ones that don't show up. They don't use the ministry of the word to heal them. It might just give you a new perspective. It might not speak every week to the thing you're struggling with, But maybe the thing you're struggling with isn't as important as the thing you should be struggling with that God now is telling you about. So we have the sacraments. We have prayer, friends. We can pray. We know that that we're invited into the throne room of what? Grace. Grace encompasses everything good in Christ. It encompasses forgetfulness. It's not who you are anymore. You have grace. You have the grace to forget. You have the grace of God to be forgiven. You have the grace of God that all things are lawful for you, but you will not come under the power of any. You have a grace for that. You can take hold of those things. So you're able to admonish, and I'm able to admonish, and I admonish the whole church in these things. And they're difficult. And Paul almost apologizes. I'm telling you some things. I'm being very bold here. He says, 
Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Friends, it's not judgmental to tell a person that his problem is sin. It's the way to freedom from the problem because the sin is the problem. And so Jay Adams tells us we have means of grace. The Holy Spirit uses the ministry of the word, the sacraments, prayer, and guess what else he uses? Fellowship of God's people. Just being friends with other people who have the Holy Spirit and have struggled with the same things you struggle with and have overcome them. The fellowship of God's people as the principal vehicles through which he brings about such changes. How can counseling that is removed from the means of grace, he writes, expect to affect the permanent changes that come only by growth in grace? So wise. Paul said the same thing to Thessalonica. He said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Friends, if it's the will of God, then you have the power to bring it about. Because it's his will in you. And you should abstain from sexual immorality. See, that's a problem. That'll always bring problems in your life. Sexual immorality will bring problems. It'll bring an inner gnawing, a grief. Uh, 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 Whatever is not from faith is sin. And a lot of things you can't do in faith, right? That each of you should what? Know how to possess his own vessel. That's the whole ball game. (laughs) That's your whole life. Possess your own vessel. You have the ability for self-mastery over the things that trouble you. You possess yourself. Take hold. The Holy Spirit really is the owner of you. Let him possess you. Possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You're different from them, friends. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. I don't dare tell you something different than what God is telling the church here. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. (laughs) So if I don't tell you what I'm telling you today, the Lord will take his vengeance out on people like me. As we also forewarned you and testified, he wrote, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We have access to healing, friends. And I'll close with the next two verses. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Our Father, may we be able to lovingly admonish one another for the glory of Christ and for the 
freedom of the saints, Father, let the truth set us free according to your promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.